1: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Let's welcome Rob Lankenauer and Josh Barron, authors of Harvard Business Review's Family Business Handbook. I'm so excited to have you guys since I work in the field. And so, Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, then Josh can tell us a little bit about his.
0: Hi, Mark, thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it and look forward to the conversation. Let's see, my background, uh, business background, my dad was head of uh, sales at Wilson Sporting Goods. So uh, he, uh, he kind of got me into the into the world of business. Uh, first job with Frito-Lay and then Harvard Business School and then 17 years as a partner at Boston Consulting Group. Wrote a book there called Hardball. Are you playing to play or playing to win? Which is a, about competitive strategy in business. Uh, But when our third daughter, Sophie, arrived, uh, I just couldn't do it all and uh, decided to go on the dad track rather than the BCG partner track and uh, did a couple of uh, early stage startups in material science and then joined the company that became Banyan. And about 10 years ago, nine years ago, exactly, uh, Josh and I and three others started uh, Banyan Family Business Advisors. And I've been the... CEO and one of the partners uh since the beginning and I'm proud to say I'm the co-author of this book with Josh Barron.
1: I wish I would have been your friend when I was a kid and using Jack Wilson uh, uh autograph Jack Kramer or Wilson autograph brackets.
0: I we we had those and uh we uh I one time got a call from OJ Simpson but that's a whole other story.
1: Was that while he was riding in the jeep? No, it was a little bit before that. He was he was awesome.
0: He was really awesome.
1: All right. Sounds good. And, and by the way, your book, Hardball,
0: how long ago did that come out? That came out about 20 years ago. It, it did really well. It sold about 50,000 copies. Again, it was with Hardball for Business School Press. And uh, it was about competitive strategy. And we offered six kind of hardball strategies about how to win in the marketplace. We, we found that many of our clients, uh, I, I co-authored with another BCG partner, and we got a little frustrated with our clients sometimes because they were what we called playing to play, which is a little bit just kind of taking the momentum they were given as, as managers and leaders instead of really trying to forge new ways to compete well, if that book is still relevant, send it to me and we'd like to have you back and talk about that book.
1: Because that sounds really interesting. It'll be fun to do with my co-author on that one too. Thank you. And so Josh, tell us about your background.
2: Sure. Uh, like Rob, started professionally in the consulting world. I went to competitor BCG Bain and & Company. And then I joined a spinoff of Bain called Bridgespan that works with large foundations and nonprofit organizations. And so my My first experience working with families was more on philanthropy. And then um, similar time to Rob, I was just trying to figure out what what to do next, got introduced to someone who became uh, one of our partners, uh, became one of my partners and um, been doing this work ever since. And I've had the great pleasure to work with uh, family businesses all around the world, a lot in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Um, some Africa, Middle East, it's a really um, amazing thing that we get to do work with these work with these companies. Uh, my academic background uh, a little bit in business, but mostly in, in international politics. And so, I actually, did a PhD um, studying like long term patterns. Why is it that sometimes the great powers, in most most powerful countries in the world, why do they sometimes uh, get along really well, and other times they fight to the death? Um, and wrote a book on that that did not sell fifty thousand copies. Um, but, you know, kind of trying to explain that. And I've actually been able, you know, one of the nice things I like about this job is it kind of brings everything everything together. A lot of the concepts um, we talk about conflict actually come from, um, come from that work. And um, I teach at Columbia Business School. One of the classes is called Managing Conflict in Family Business. Um, and then also a kind of a core class on family business management. So thank you so much for having me here
1: too. And how long ago did that uh, book come out, because that sounds really interesting as well. Uh,
2: yeah, well, it definitely did not make the bestseller list. Um, let's see. It was would have been uh, 2011, I think it was, when it came out. Uh, well,
1: I, I'd, if you have a chance, send me the electronic version or the print version. Sure. Maybe we can have you back for that, because I'm, I think that tells a lot about why even companies succeed and fail, is my guess, um, from reading that book. So I, I'd be interested to know more. Rob, why did you guys write this book and why this title?
0: The reasons we wrote the book is that most people don't know that family businesses are the predominant form of ownership of companies worldwide. Uh, it depends upon how you measure what they are and all the measurements, but somewhere between, by country, 35% and 85% of all companies are owned by families. And it can be a husband and wife, it could be siblings, it could be cousins, so it's they're everywhere, and they're not they're not covered very much. You you, we, you read the Wall Street Journal, I would say you know five percent of the coverage is probably family businesses, and the coverage that they get is just full of myths. Um, There's a myth that they're full of terrible conflict. And what we find is often the families are avoiding conflict. And we'll talk about that probably later. There's this myth called the three-generation rule that the founder comes in, the second generation does okay, and the third generation messes it all up. It's not true. And we could list about 10 other myths that we, we found in our work were not true with these great families that we have as clients. What we did find is that... They, when done well, family business, we call it as the best form of capitalism. It's a form of capitalism that not only is profitable, but it gives a lot back to the communities and gives a lot back to the the employees. And we should uh, talk about that. The other reason, of course, uh, Mark, is if Susan Francis is our editor at HBR, if she calls you and says, hey, would you like to write a book? We agreed that yes is a good answer. (laughs) <laughs> of course.
1: They were great. And not, no better press uh, publishing house to work for than those guys. Because I'd say probably at least a third of the authors I interview are end up from Harvard Press. Because they're just great, thoughtful books. And, and that's what I like about them. Josh, what are the three things you were hoping that readers who read this book walk away with?
2: One thing is that um, to avoid searching for a silver bullet... There's, there's not a right way to run and manage a family business. Um, sometimes you'll, especially in my work in Asia, there's sort of this, we just need to write a family constitution. If we write a family constitution, all our problems will be solved. Um, it doesn't, doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So there are very few things that we would describe as best practices, meaning that they're the, the singular way to do things. In fact, I think we could probably count them on one hand without using all, all of our fingers. Um, So that's one, is that there's not a right answer. The second thing is actually, but there are, there's a lot to be learned. This is a field that's been around. It's relatively recent in terms of people studying family businesses in a, in a distinctive and serious way, but we've learned a lot. And to, you know, to Rob, to Rob's, you know, the question about why writing it, one of the reasons why is because in our consulting practice, we'll, you know, get to work with only a small sliver of the family businesses. Um, We've had the pleasure of of having this great learning opportunity and want to share what we've learned with others. So know that you're not alone. If you're facing some challenging issues, difficult dynamics, all that kind of stuff. It's not something wrong with you or your family. Um, And that would be the third. You know, the third thing is that, you know, don't try to be searching for the, the perfect family you know like people put a lot of pressure on themselves that you know our family has to has to be you know, get along perfectly and spend all this time together and all that kind of stuff i think what we would really emphasize is the importance of willing to do the work together i mean that's really the, what differentiates family businesses for, that succeed uh, from those that don't is, to an important extent, an attitude thing, and it's a willingness to say there's work to be done. We're going to be willing to sit on, you know, sit around a table, um, ask good questions, um, invite perspectives, learn from others, attend webinars like this one, um, and, and really learn about how we can improve and make some decisions together. Yeah,
1: I, I, I'm interested. Before you know, you guys saw the list of questions. I'm going to ask, but uh, Rob, you started to talk about the 10 myths. Do you think you can just briefly tell us what those 10 myths are, and then we'll jump
0: into the rest of the question? There are probably 20 of them, but we'll uh, let's do a, do a few. <laughs> uh, and Josh, uh, help me through. But a few that come to mind is this conflict one, first of all. You know, I'll often, oftentimes, you'll talk to somebody, or you'll read the a, a paper about a family business, and they just talk about how harsh the conflict is. So many times with our clients, um, they're avoiding conflict and they're sitting back because they they worry that if they do get into hard conflict, it's going to really hurt the family and the business. So a lot of what you try to do is get in a middle ground where you're, we call it the decision area, where you respectfully can disagree. You can work through interests and then positions and get to the decisions. The reason is that decisions are crucial to the longevity of family businesses. Another myth, we have so many of our clients, I'd say 60, 70% come to us and say, Josh and Rob, aren't we the worst family you've ever met? Because there's some conflict and there's like kind of some craziness going on in the family. We think it's the opposite. Uh, These business families who can go across generations successfully together, owning a business together, they're needing to make huge, important decisions together meaning, you know, decisions that could be multiple millions of dollars of investments, sometimes firing their mother, and somehow they're able to stay together as a business family. I can speak about my family, you know, deciding what we're watching on Netflix. That's a hard decision for the Lock and family. These families <laughs> stay together and they make these great decisions. I, I find them so admirable that they can do it. Uh, another thing is... Um, you learn, uh, if you work with publicly traded companies, it's all about profits. Total shareholder return is the thing that drives your, your share price more than anything else. And you know, Milton Friedman, he's the only reason the businesses, should, the only goal businesses should have is profits. This is wrong for family business. You can, as an owner group, you can choose your own goals. You can say, we wanna grow the value of the company. You could say, we want to take money out of the company. You can say, we want to control it for other reasons. Maybe just, we want to work together. I was on with a client yesterday, unbelievable family. They, they are in Frank, they're in service of their community they own some supermarket chain out in the Southwest. And it's all—it's not about growing profits. It's not about taking money out of the company. They deeply believe they have been given a great gift by their grandparents to own a chain of supermarkets. And they want to lean in and serve their communities. They taught me how important Supermarkets are to every community. I never thought about it. Every time you go out, you get food in your supermarket. It's a real statement of who the community is. So those are just three big myths that we would we'd say. Josh, do you want to add a couple? I,
2: I think one, and we can come back to this, is this whole idea of longevity, um, because you know, family. We have this sort of idea of the three generation rule that there's this notion that family businesses just don't last, and. Um, you know the data really doesn't support that. Most of the longest living, you know, lasting businesses in the world are family businesses. Most businesses don't last, you know, for very long if we're talking decades, you know, which is what generational generations are. Um, so I think that's one. Another is just that I think there's a, a myth that a family business isn't a real business. That basically, you know, if you want to be a real business, you should be a public company like you know Google and Facebook and things like that. And um, these are the backbone of the economy, um, you know, in the U.S. and globally. Um, they're some of the most important businesses. They're often not on the radar because the business press wants to cover Apple and and those kinds of companies. Um, but these they, they are critical to the economy. Some of them are enormous companies, employing thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees. They they are doing a lot to support and sustain their communities. So it is you know there is actually a path to compete at the very highest levels of the economy um, as a family business. So just sticking
1: with you. Uh, what is the definition of a family business and how many family members must it employ? And does the family have to own a majority of the company's
2: stock to be a family business? Yeah, Mark, it's a really good question. I think people, you know, everyone will have their own definition. Um, I think that how we would sort of define a family business is centered around ownership control. So does the family actually able to make those Critical decisions that really face, that really define the long term success or future. Like, do we stay private or go public? Um, Are we, um, you know, do we want to pay out in dividends, as Rob was talking about, or reinvest back in the company? Are there certain things that we're going to do, um, even though they, you know, or not going to do, even though they might make us money um, as a company? So there's a certain set of decisions that really define and shape. The business And the real question is, is there a family that is able to make those, either directly because they own the shares or because they're the trustees of trust that hold the shares, as oftentimes happens in, in the U.S. when we have dealing with the state tax, the state tax issues? Um, and, you know, how many? Well, we would say it's, it's basically two or more. And they can be either at the same time or it can be sequentially. So there's one family business we know that's in the 26th generation. For the first 25 of those generations, it was one to one. You know, passing down the twenty sixth. By the way, those are all males. This was kind of you know common primogeniture kind of thing. The twenty sixth generation, there were three three women. So the founder had to basically decide: Do I either sort of go away from the you know from sell this as a business, or do I go away from that and, and have have his daughters on the business? And, and thankfully, decide on the latter. So it's really about that question. It doesn't you can be a family business if you're not running it. If it's not the family in management positions, the family can be on the board. The family can be sort of sitting in this ownership role. It's really about ultimately about control over the things that fundamentally affect that business. Is that in the hands of, of, of a family?
1: Uh, one of the questions we have from the audience, I don't know if you two are familiar with the show. Are, you, are either of you familiar with a show called Pawn Stars?
0: I've seen it, but I've never watched it myself.
1: Because uh, the question was, do you think 20 years from now, there will be a third generation of Pawn Stars on TV?
2: No, sorry. <laughs> wish, we, wish we
0: could give you a, a better prediction there. I can't speak to that. I don't know if you can, John. We can. Yeah. But we will say, if you know that show, you know, think about them as owners of a business, and they have to make decisions together, and we'll talk about the kind of decisions. And do you think that that group can get together and make the important decisions to uh, to possibly go to the next generation? You'd also ask, is there a next generation who wants to be involved in the business and would be uh, willing to do all the things you need to be to do to be a good family business owner?
2: Well, and, and how is it going to evolve, right? I mean, the nature of the media is changing, you know, and and. The, what, what it means to be the pawn stars may may evolve and are they able and willing to kind of make those those tough choices and realize that what it looks like today in, in 20 years is likely to be likely to be very different no question and I'm so gonna watch pawn stars to understand what they're tough to <laughs> yeah absolutely for sure we've got a homework assignment for the weekend
0: but I will say let me add to this because uh, family businesses are given such a bad rap um, the TV show Succession. Oh yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's on HBO. I I watched one half of one episode, the first episode. I couldn't do any more because the uh, there's there's no redeeming anything in anybody. They're all just out, out for themselves. They seem super kind of greedy and evil. I'm like. I know family businesses. It's not that way at all. But uh, I know it's a very fun human story that they go through, but that's not the real life of family business.
1: Yeah, I I did a little bit better than you. I lasted at two episodes and it was too stressful just (laughs) watching these people. And and they were so uh, so evil. I I couldn't handle it. Rob, let me ask you, uh, you write about the differences between a conventional and family business. Please explain Uh, Three defining
0: characteristics. We've been touching around that, but let's go right into uh, the difference. So a conventional business, I'll just say it's a non-family business. So what makes something a a family business and makes it different? The first thing is that owners are people. So imagine if your family, your current generation and maybe your next generation were all owners uh, of, a, of a business. It matters deeply who those people are. And maybe you have some, like in my family, uh, there are, so it's my wife, myself, and our three daughters. There are two of us, myself and our middle daughter, super interested in business. And two others are in the medical field. And another, I don't know what she's going to do, but it's not neither of those So that matters who we are, and it matters who the owners are. If you have nobody in the next generation who's interested in the family business, you probably won't have a multi-generational family business. Their personality, what they like to do, if they're all about creating wealth and value, then your family business is going to be that way. So um, at BCG, when we used to advise companies, we would advise as much Positions, meaning the CEO, the head of marketing, head of manufacturing, on what their strategies ought to be. At Banyan, it's different because our clients are owners, and the owners are people. So we're advising not just this person as an owner, but this person as a person, and that matters greatly.
1: Uh, what size businesses are you are you two typically dealing with? What's the you know revenue or
0: employee? typically uh, pretty big, um, by which we mean, uh, usually the the lowest revenue that our clients have annual turnover for the business is around $100 million. And we go up to you know, the largest family businesses in the world. We have had great clients who are smaller than $100 million. Uh, Josh, in particular, had this great one we learned so much from in the Philippines, about $50 million in turnover. But we, uh, I think we learned as much from that client as any. We also work sometimes for smaller companies because we, many of us love the entrepreneurs, that first-generation wealth creator who is also considering, we call it 2G or not 2G, which basically means, do I have a first generation and a second generation or do I just have a first generation? They're fascinating people because they're creators Uh, in the deep sense of the word, and there are people who are thinking deeply about what their legacy is going to be. Most of them could sell it, go public, whatever, go to venture capital or private equity, but they're thinking deeply about their family and if they want their family to be involved in the asset that they most cherish.
1: I I have a a family business that I work with now. It's a well-known national candy company, And they bought the other part of the family out. Now it's just their half of the family, all because they didn't wanna sell it to private equity. And they felt that um, the 200 people that work there, that they deserve more than being possibly let go by this. And they felt they had more, they had so much to add to the community that it it meant more to them than the money that they would reap. And the money they were gonna get was enormous bucks uh, to sell this company.
0: So yeah, I, th- I think that's what's great Many about them. if what you want, and we, all, we believe deeply owners can want what they want. No judgment, if the if owner wants a lot of money, let's go. If they want what you're talking about, which is more the case of the community and giving back to the employees, I don't, we don't judge that either. What we really want the owners to do is to think together about what we call their owner strategy. And the owner strategy is, do you have goals about creating value? Do you have goals about bringing money out of the business? Or do you have goals about controlling the business so you can do the things that you're referring to, Mark? And very few, I don't know if I have ever had myself, a client in a family business, that it's all about total shareholder return. It's always about, there's something about control and what they can do, whether they can work in the business together, whether they can get back to the community, uh, whether we have a great client investing tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in fixing up their supply chain so it's not as uh, abusive of, of the environment. These are things we, why I think we're so passionate about family businesses, Mark, is what you see, which is they're not just these steely eyed capitalists. You would not find our clients in an Ayn Rand novel. <laughs> you would find them uh, in, in very different situations because they have very complex things they're trying to do with their assets. Uh, J-
1: Josh, you write, uh, what are the five rights of family business ownership and,
2: and why are they important? Sure. And, and, and Rob was getting at this, you know, I, I think the central thesis of our book and our work um, is the importance of ownership. And, you know, in I teach in a business school, outside the family business program, we don't really talk a lot about ownership because in the public company setting, which is how you know, we typically most academics, most learning, most, most uh, books oftentimes are from a public company standpoint. And in a public company, the owners don't get to do very much. You basically you're buying you're buying hopefully buying low and selling high. Uh, you can go to an annual meeting. I've never been to one. Uh, the owners are investors, right? And as we're talking about with a family business, it's very different. The owners, they're invested in this particular business. They want it to succeed. They care about that company, whether it lasts, how it does. Um, and those kinds of things. And when we think about ownership as opposed to being sort of put into the hands of of thousands or millions of investors, it's put into the hands of a relatively small number of people, that's when we start to see ownership through a very different lens. It's much more similar to the lens of how you think about your home or your car, which is that when you own something, you personally, you actually have a lot of influence over it. And we basically talk about that through the lens of these five rights, that owners of a company have five rights that no one else has. And through those rights, they can influence it. So the five rights are, first of all, you have the right to design your company. So what do you want to own together? Is it an operating company um, or that plus a you know family office, a family foundation, shared property? You know, how what, what do you want to own? And, and who gets to be an owner? Is it everyone who's a descendant of the founder, or some for some families, just those working in the business? And how is ownership how is ownership shared? Is does everyone get to uh, share control equally? Or as in some families you might have a bunch of owners, but one person gets to make all those decisions, right? So there's a whole designing of of your family business. Um, The second right is to decide, which means when you own something, you get to decide basically everything of importance about it, you know, from the strategy of the company to the color scheme on the headquarter walls and it kind of everything in between. Um, and of course, you know, as the business and the family grows, you don't want to make all those decisions yourself. You have to figure out what do you keep versus what do you delegate? What do you make at the moment you know, as a decision? What do you create policies around family employment or dividends, things that might be controversial? So the second one. That, the third one is one that Rob's covered well, which is you have the right to value, which is basically you get to define success for yourself. What, what do you want? What do you not want the business to achieve? Um, the fourth right is you have your right to information. As an owner, you get to know what's going on. You actually get legal access to financial documents and everything else. And how you share that information with the rest of the family, with the rest of the ownership group, with your employees, has a lot to do with your ability to create the kind of like capital that your business needs, the relationship capital. It's one of the things that makes family businesses different is that they're able to build and establish long-term relationships that have real real value. Um, and how you use information affects you know, the ability to create and sustain that relationship capital. And then lastly, you have the right to transfer, meaning that if you own something, you get to decide what happens with it when you're done. Um, as Rob said, there's the question of, do you want it to remain a family business or do you want to sell it? Um, If you want it to be be a family business, how do you want to pass it down? When do you want to pass it down? Um, How do you want to develop and train the next generation to be able to step into those roles? So a lot of of work to be done. And so basically, when we said at the beginning, it's not about a silver bullet. It's about the five rights we found to be a really powerful way of understanding the key choices that the owners of a business have to make which have a significant impact in how you make those choices, has a significant impact on the way in which your family business will either last for generations, or if you don't make those choices well, if you don't do the work of ownership well, the family business is is not going to last.
1: This goes along with it. You touched about this a little bit earlier, but what is the longest enduring family business you've worked with and what is their secret to longevity?
0: The the longest one I've worked with, Mark, is... uh, 18th to 19th generation. Wow. And you'd think by then they kind of would have figured it out. So why were they talk, you know, talking to us? But in that itself is part of the answer of why they had the longevity. Um, we think common in the culture across family businesses that go across generations, they, we call it the law. <laughs> they learn, they adapt, and they work together. So this was a family, having done it successfully across 19 generations, still wanting to learn about what the best practice is, is to keep themselves together. ADAPT, in their case, is super interesting. They're a very Catholic family, and they had a code of values, which were very uh, akin to the Catholic faith. But some of the members of the family, it's a very large family, had married uh, Muslim spouses. So what were they going to do and what their their value set? They said, oh, our value set, there's some fundamental Christian values that we have that overlap with many Muslim values. And they they adopted and changed, adapted their value set to fit the new reality of who their family was. And finally, the work part of it, so interesting that they they were very structured family and they we were always putting a roadmap out in front of them. They had about a two or three year roadmap of work they needed to do. It's either work on the family values, work on the business assets, work on bringing the spouses in. And that was just part of what their value set was. So it was fascinating to see a family that was able to stay together, a large family to stay together and uh, continue into the 19th generation.
1: And that's incredibly impressive. What part of the world are they located?
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> meaning they're so they're a global family. Uh, they have people in Europe, people in the States, people in Asia. Yeah. So all really all over. Wow. Now I, I found when I work
1: with families in Latin America, that they had many generations, including my uh, ex-wife's family, many generations going into the family business. And, and interesting that they did a lot of work with other family businesses And so if you started something and you knew families in other countries, you were able to roll out a product pretty
0: fast. It's really cool. There is this infrastructure ecosystem behind that we don't see unless you're part of it, that uh, they really know how to work with each other quite well.
1: So, Josh, at
2: what age should you
1: see if your kids are interested in the family business?
2: Yeah. and, And I guess what I would say that that sounds like more of a passive question. Whereas I think that what you're trying to do is actually build that connection as early as you can. I think when you when you talk to people that um, work for family businesses, second, third, fourth, fifth generation, and so on, there's almost a common story that you'll hear, which is some version of, you know, I've been at the office ever since I could walk. You know, I worked all my summers probably in, in violating child, child labor laws because I was, you know, moving boxes in the warehouse when I was 12. Um, there, You know, there there is a real um, value in creating that level of connection as early as you can. And we're saying connection is really that, that sort of emotional connection to the business. And so what you're trying to do is to build that. And I think the families that are most successful here, let that blossom over time, um, and really try to figure out and find the right time to have this question, depending on where you know where each person is in their own career. For some people, you know, it's sort of a you know that this is the place they've worked their entire life. And that works quite well. Um, For others, they go through, they work outside, they go to go to school, um, and then there becomes a time when they'll uh, they'll sort of realize it's the right thing for them. And so, you know, I've seen some really. There's one family business we know that you know the the current CEO was um, in a band for 20 years, no interest in business whatsoever. Um, But that was sort of his passion, and then he decided he was interested in business. So they found a a path for him to go on. It turned out he had a real aptitude for it, Um, and then they ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately elevated him after several years and all those kinds of things to this senior leadership position. And so I would say it's not it's not a a one size fits all. It's trying to find that right moment for someone to come into the business. But the common denominator is making sure that they actually have that connection first, um, because then they'll always kind of have it in the back of their mind uh, that maybe it's the right thing for them at a particular moment in their career.
1: Josh, just to uh, uh, add on to this, I- I'm wondering, please, uh, do you think it's better for the kids to go directly into the family business and be trained in the family business right away? Or should they work for other businesses first? and then join the family business? Because uh, I've had family businesses tell me uh,
2: both. It's such an interesting question. I mean, I think, and and let's see if Rob would agree, I think for most people, most of the time, working somewhere else is really valuable. Um, Sometimes people will say, you want to be known for your first name, not your last name. Um, You know, you, you want to be in a position where you're actually having to have a boss who's not a relative, um, have people actually give you good feedback, which is really hard. It's really hard to get honest feedback, candid feedback inside of a family business. You want to have some success. You want to have some skills so that when you come back, you're actually able to build up your own kind of platform of expertise. So I would say for most people, we would recommend that you actually spend a meaningful amount of time outside the business, building up those skills, building up that track record so that when you come in, you're just better positioned, I think, to be to be successful. Now, all that said, I'd love to say that's the best practice, but like you, Mark, I can point you to, to a number of people that have said, I've worked here my entire life and you can't argue with the results. Um, So there are situations in which it it kind of does make sense, but even it's interesting because even those people, most of the time they'll say, yeah, I worked here for my entire life, but I want my kids to go work somewhere else first. Um, So it's sort of teetering on. We talked earlier about there aren't very many best practices. I think this is kind of teetering on the edge. You should think of it, I I would almost think about it as a default. You should go work somewhere else first for a meaningful job. If there's some exception to the rule, make it an exception to the rule.
1: I'm with you. I always tell the families, I I think it's best your kids work for someone else, learn other systems, really learn what it's like to be an employee and less pressure with their last name on there and then bring them in maybe four or five years down the road and, and see if you want them in, see if they've earned their way in. So Rob, What's your advice on evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of family members and aligning them with the right, uh, positions? That's always seems to be a problem with some, uh, families. I'll take
0: two angles in. The first one is just building on what Josh said about feedback to family members is really difficult. The, uh. There's this uh, not good thing called the coddle model, which is a family member joins a business and he or she is coddled to the top of the organization without all the developmental feedback that you should have. Um, So that's not a good thing either, frankly, for the person, because he or she will be in above their head. And definitely not for the business. If you have leaders who haven't had all the experiences that they need to be successful at the top of a company, you're really putting the company at risk. Um, So what a lot of our clients do on trying to evaluate strengths and, and weaknesses are a couple things. For family members, they'll do what we call supplements. So they will have the company feedback from the boss, typically. The family members will be supplemented with 360 reviews where everybody is having a say in how the person strengths and areas for development. They'll supplement with uh, assessments, psychological and other assessments to see if they're in the right kind of job for them. And they'll supplement with coaches, outside coaches. I'm amazed in the last 10, 20 years. Coaches are everywhere. And it used to be, oh, you have a coach. What's wrong with you? And now it's like, well, you don't have an executive (laughs) coach. Well, you really should consider it. There's so many good ones out there. And I have found in family businesses and outside of family businesses that executive coaches can have a big impact on how people perform. The other thing they do is they have outside, outsiders do the evaluation, by which we mean not somebody in the company, not somebody in the family. If they have a board of directors and they have independent advisors or directors, they'll have that person overseeing the career development of the family members. That's super important. The other thing you should realize is that there's this myth of the CEO, which is, oh, that's the best job ever. I, I don't know. I'm a CEO. That was the best job ever. <laughs> the, there's so many roles in a family business that you should have your mind open to. And you should uh, uh, develop and evaluate to that. One is, if you're a future owner, think about becoming a, what we call a professional owner. What does that mean? Well, you should be a really... What does it mean to be a good owner in your situation? Maybe you'll be best on the board of directors. What does it mean to be a a board, a family board member, we've benchmarked the best family businesses in the world and how they do development programs for their board members. It's really impressive what they do. They take it very seriously because those are very serious roles. And there are also roles in the family. Who's going to be leader of the family council? And that's a development role in itself. So don't just think about the business. Don't just think about the CEO. Think about all the roles that you'll need in the family firm for it to be successful.
1: I agree with you. The CEO job is not necessarily the best job uh, to go and get. And a lot of times, I have a family where there were um, three kids, and the brother thought he should rightfully, because it had always been males. But I told the father, the sister was the best equipped uh, to handle that CEO position. and, And he felt that it would be embarrassing if he wasn't the CEO. But I said to him, you've got skills that your sister doesn't have, that you'd be much better placed in this part of the company. And at the end of the day, it's where could you have the greatest value?
0: Yeah, one of our clients has a great term for that. He calls it highest and best use. What, he always asks, what is my highest and best use? And then what's Uncle Tom's highest and best use? And i found that a useful uh, turn of
1: phrase. So Josh, where is the best place to start family members? Sweeping the floor or a department that matches their skills? What, what do you tell your clients?
2: Yeah, and again, I'm not sure there's like a single best place, but I think a few things that might be helpful to consider. Um, One is to to make it a real job. Um, You know, I think it's good. You know, training programs and exposure; those those are fine as like an entry point, good to kind of see things. But I think those that are actually able to be uh, most successful are are really creating and building careers. And um, I was talking actually to one my my class a couple weeks ago. I had a uh, someone from a, a very large family business. He's second generation, um, you know, at a relatively young age has become the chief marketing officer for this really incredible uh, brand company. Um, and, and he said, it, it, We were asking him, like, what, is, what are your secrets to success? He said, Well, I always, I always thought about building a career. And, you know, I, was, I didn't know if that was going to lead me to this job or, or maybe inside the family business or outside the family business, but I know that I've actually built real skills. And uh, that, that, that sort of gives him the confidence to do this role, or if it doesn't work out, you know, he said, I'll go do something else and everything, everyone will be just fine. So you want to get people on a, a path, you know, even if it's starting out in more of a, a training role towards getting into a real, a real career. Um, the second thing is you you want to pick the right level for someone to start. And, and maybe it's somewhere between sweeping the floors and CEO, right? Where you want, I think the ones that you know that I've asked this question and that they found to be successful are the ones that have actually been able to build on a pathway to success. So you know, they started in, in finance and accounting and then helped to kind of build up the you know the systems and so on, and that positioned them to be able to step into a leadership role down the road. Um, so you you want, you want to be thinking about how are you building up your your credibility within the family business, not just with the family, but with all the non-family folks that you're going to have to work with and and potentially be in a leadership role uh, with someday. So trying to actually feel, think about how are you how are you creating that. And then the third thing is I would at least consider um, how are you are you sort of right in the spotlight or maybe somewhere to the side. And, and oftentimes. You know one of the things that family businesses struggle with is is having your own space, something to call your own. And if you're kind of going right down the center of um, you know of the family business into the most important area, the spotlight is kind of shining right on you. You might be sort of getting into conflicts or issues with someone else. So, you know, a lot of success of people saying, you know, let me let me work on this new project or let me work on something different. Let me take something that's not sort of in the spotlight, build up my strength, have a little success that I can actually point to over time. Um, that gives me a further platform to be successful down the road.
1: All, all good advice. So, Rob, in the book, you write about internal family competition. How do you manage it in a way that doesn't turn out like those popular 80s shows Dallas and Dynasty, and of course the one you mentioned earlier
0: today, Succession, yes, or uh, Pawn Stars. I don't know. <laughs> um, the the uh, there are many things you need to do, but let me just focus on one, which is which is trust. Uh, how do you build trust in a family business? The uh, it's it doesn't come like genetically. It's not like I trust my sister because she's I do trust my sister, but uh, it's not like you trust your sister just because. She's your sister. If you're having to make tough decisions together, that can be a trust breaker. So the, the clients that we see, the family businesses that we see that do this well, actively work. They understand what drives and creates trust, and they actively work it. We, we learned this framework from Bill Kahn, who's a professor at uh, Boston University. He said that trust is, I call it rock. It is the person has to be reliable which basically means, you know, do they do what they say they're gonna do? Do they show up to the meeting? Do they write that memo? Do they send that email? Can I rely that person do what they say they do? Two, are they open? Do, they, do you really think they're telling you what's, what's real in their, in their heart? Three, are they competent? Are they, you know, are they in the right position for them that they can deliver the value that they're trying to do? And the fourth one is, are they caring? Meaning, do they care more about, as much about others as they do themselves? So R-O-C-C, rock. The, uh It's useful, simple framework to, to look at if you have a tough relationship with somebody in your family business or anybody in your life, what is it that is breaking that trust? We had this great family getting together. Uh, next generation, there were uh, eight of them. And one guy was always late. He would not come to, come to the meetings on time. He'd come like half an hour late. Oh, my alarm clock didn't come off. He was not shaving yet. It killed the reliability aspect of trust. And we, you know, a family member started talking to him like, hey, Tom, if you're gonna get be part of this generation, we need to trust each other. And this is the breaker right now. So it can become very practical advice off of this framework. Uh, And that works like any
1: business, you know, you have to be able to count on people doing what they say they're going to do. Josh, how do you determine pay for family members?
2: Ideally a cage match. uh, (laughs) Fighting each other. No.
1: Um, This is
2: something that becomes very, very controversial in in a family business. And um, like, Like most things that are controversial and that are likely to cause conflict, the single best way to have to deal with it is to have some sort of policy that's consistently applied across people and you know there's there's lots of different policies. We talk about some of them in the book. There are some families that you know pay above market wages to attract people to the company in, in locations that may be less, you know, where the people are less willing or below market because they want to make it sure you really want to work there or at market, but some some version of You get paid for the job that you're doing is usually the best recipe. And which one of the things that I think, you know, first to second generation oftentimes struggle with is there's a lack of differentiation between compensation for work done and money for being an owner. And those things are kind of melded together and we all get the same. We're all third owners, we're all working, and so we all get the same exact salary. And that can work just fine when you've got a group of siblings who are all doing more or less the same thing. I've seen lots of examples where that works. But once you start to have people who are, some are in the business, some are not in the business, some are at the top of the ladder, some are sweeping the floors or doing whatever, um, then it becomes really important to have a, a more consistent methodology to apply to that to that situation. and to basically say, you know I think the the most helpful one is some version of this is what it would cost us to hire anyone into this job. So we're going to you know pay you some version of that. And, and you can use, you know you can use you know there's a lot of compensation consultants and other ones that can help. Um, You know, if you've got an independent, if you have have a board of directors with independent members, which we highly encourage, this is a really valuable thing for them to help um, implement some of these policies. Many family businesses will have a a family employment committee that will be in charge of putting more of an objective space uh, or, or assessment of family member compensation, and oftentimes the independent directors are sitting there. Um, So try to bring some level of as much objectivity to it as you can, as much consistency as you can, and ultimately tie it to contribution and performance um, in some form or fashion um, and separate the idea of what you get by being an owner, which is sort of dividends and other things like that.
1: Yeah, that compensation is really important, not just for them, but for the employees seeing how the family members are treated whether they're given more and doing less uh, and it has psychological ramifications and also who they're able to recruit and retain.
0: Yeah, so sure.
1: there's a lot of, uh, it's never, very powerful. Yeah. And also, you, when they start marrying and they have uh, their spouses whispering into their ears, then that also adds some complication to it.
2: Absolutely. Just never forget if you're, if you're working in a family business, never forget that the spotlight is always on you. People are watching you for what you're doing, what you're not doing, whether you're showing up late and, and unshaven, whether you're on time, whether you have a smile on your face or a frown, um, whether you take more vacation than anyone else, You know, whether what car you drive, where you park, all of these things are going to shape the culture of the business. And the ones that, that, that we work with that have great cultures, in part because they pay a lot of attention to the ways that family members behave and act in that work environment because it sets the tone for everyone else.
1: That's fine. Even the parking, I have a client now that um, one of the kids parks at the very front and the employees are saying, you're so new. I mean, like, why should you be parking all the way up front when you should be parking at the back of the parking lot and let more seasoned or or people uh, have seniority get that particular spot. So it does make a difference. Rob, what's the best way to handle a family member who isn't working out?
0: So I think you mean isn't working out in the business and maybe yeah, should be yeah. should be let go. This yeah. is another tough issue. We, uh, two, th- two little stories and then some policy. Uh, two stories are, we worked with this family business where one of the family members did well for 15 years, became head of technology, and then really didn't do well, dug in, and after many conversations, he was fired, and he was so upset with the way it was handled, he sued his own family business. The other, you don't want that, that's not a best practice. The other is, um, we have a general rule of thumb on this one, that if a family member joins a family business and is fired in a a non-gracious way, they will not only leave the business, but likely they're going to have to leave the family for five years as they recast their identity. Many family members think, Oh, I'm going to be in the family business. My name is on the door and it's my, what I've always wanted to do. And then it's taken away from them. So it's a really tough thing that you have to handle very well. Um, Josh just spoke about the need for policies. This is probably one of the areas where policies are most important. Um, There should be a, an exit policy for family members: How it's handled if people are underperforming, or is it okay for everybody to stay forever? I and mean, we've had clients both ways. Most clients, there comes a time when people have to be uh, be uh, fired if they're if they're underperforming have a process for doing that. Uh, it could be that you have an onbudsman who really gathers all the reviews and you've, that's a pre-agreed process you're going through, or maybe it's someone on the board who does it. You need a trusted hand who's predetermined to have this decision right. Really hard if you don't have it, and even hard if you do have such a process.
1: Uh, Josh, you write that non-leading family members can have a significant impact. Can you give some examples?
2: Sure, Um, and one of the things we talk about in the book in in terms of governance, we talk about the idea of four rooms, So these are four key areas and and the, the work to be done in a family business happens in these four different rooms or spaces. You have the management room, which is where you run the company, you have the boardroom, which is where you make strategic decisions, you hire management, you have the owner room where you make that sort of relatively small number of big decisions, like do we keep the company public or private? Um, you know, do we reinvest uh, or, or pay out dividends? And then you have the family room, which is where you try to keep the family unified. You do you develop the next generation. And so, if you think about it that way, you know, the CEO is the leader of the management room, which is really important. It's a, it's a critically important job. Um, but all of the other three rooms are also really important that family businesses that that succeed are ones that that have good functioning boards of directors and, and owner councils and family councils, and they've got spaces to do all this different work. And it turns out that being a great CEO doesn't mean that you're actually gonna be great at any of those other three. In some ways, it's almost the opposite, where if you're a CEO and you're used to basically people coming to you and you sit at your desk, People come with you with decisions and you say, this is, you know, is it A, B? And say, no, it's C, like, and we're done. That's the way we're going, right? That's not, that's not how leadership happens in the, the boardroom or in the owner or family rooms. So it takes very different kinds of leadership, especially when your, your goal is to build consensus, um, to get people aligned and on the same page. Um, it takes very different, a different form of leadership to make that successful. And so not only do family businesses require multiple leaders to be successful, they require different kinds of leadership. And so if you're not the kind of person who sees themselves running the company one day, it doesn't mean that you can't, or even working in the company, it doesn't mean that you can't have a significant impact on its success. You can't have, make a major contribution through one of these other spaces.
1: Uh, Josh, uh, there's a question from the audience here. Do you have any advice or rules of thumb regarding buy-sell agreements?
2: Yes, you a should lot. have one. <laughs> <laughs> You, you, by the way, if you don't have a buy-sell agreement, you still have a buy-sell agreement. It's basically whatever the whatever the, the law says in your jurisdiction, and it says something about what happens in the event of a dispute or a desired sale. And, and trust me when I tell you this, you don't want what, they, what they're going to offer, um, because it will oftentimes be the liquidation of the company for sale. Um, those are the kinds of remedies that the law has. And so rather than relying on that, you are so much better off developing the terms of, of how you want those kinds of transactions to work in your family. Who's an eligible buyer? Who is an eligible seller? Um, you know, what, how are you going to determine the valuation? These are things that you, families will oftentimes just sort of operate by handshake or maybe there's just some agreement that's gathering dust on a shelf. Um, and and you know, the, the problem with that is that it works perfectly fine up until the moment where it doesn't work at all. And you've got this big dispute that you, it would have been great to have some rules and some processes and set up. So make sure you've got a buy-sell agreement that clarifies the rules of, of how shares can be sold or transferred sometime or a shareholder agreement that covers some of those things. Make sure you understand it. Make sure that it's been updated to actually make sense for the environment of today. And beyond the agreement, think about the process, right? What, what a lot of families will do is not just sort of say, okay, we've got these rules, but how is it working in practice? Do you, you know, many families will have an annual window. They'll do the valuation. Then you'll have a month where people can raise their hand and say I like to sell. Then you've got a, a waterfall process of who can buy. It's all very well orchestrated. So these kinds of issues can be a huge source of conflict. And the more that you can get out in front of them and create the agreement, and the process to implement it, the better off that you'll be.
1: I, I'm to agreement with you. We have an, a question, another question from the audience, and is, and I don't know if either of you can answer it or want to answer it. Any comment on the Purdue Family Pharmaceutical Company about how to handle lawsuits in the public, public scrutiny? Which one of you two wants to take that one? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. I don't know enough about it to speak deeply about it. It seems like it's a family um, a a set of owners who lost their way and lost touch with what really matters uh, in running a a business and running a family business. Uh, I don't know that society in a major way. And a terrible impact on society and not to like explicitly tie your behavior to Actions that were so detrimental to so many Americans and people worldwide is a tragedy. Is it just a deep, deep, deep tragedy? I, I don't know if I.
1: So here, this might uh, also follow into this: Should family businesses have a board of directors or an advisory board, and what size should a family consider this? And what should be the composition—family and outsiders? Those guys probably should have had themselves, you know, independent board members to help them manage. They got off the rails.
0: Yes. Um, so beyond Purdue about the, the boardroom is a really important question to, to address as your family business grows. The, um, the first thing to think about is what's the role of a board of directors? And it's really about oversight of the business. It w- the decision rights typically in a board of directors are hire fire CEO, approve, don't set, but approve strategy, set the annual dividend, compliance issues, succession planning, and a few more. Major acquisitions typically come through there too. The um, Of those decisions, like, do we need a board to make those decisions? I think there, there are two things that often come into play when our clients are considering uh, putting in a board when they haven't had one before. One is there can be, a lack of expertise of the family on these topics. Well, we uh, we we're moving away from a family CEO. We're going to an outside CEO. We've never done that, and I don't know who in the family is good at that. And they could get a, a, a they could hire a headhunter, uh, a executive search. Many families say this is a long term thing we're doing. You know, we're thinking about not only the CEO, but we're actually thinking about the whole succession plan in, in the business. We want someone who's been there, done that, and they will put a board in with expertise on that. The second thing that I see often is the um, shareholders, the owners who are a little bit more distant from the family, uh, the the direct owners or the, the owner operators often want a board because they're looking for a trusted voice of their family members and also some independence that they can talk to about This is what I'm being told with all of your experience. How do you see it? And the family members who are deep in the business like it too, because there's this other uh, arbitrator of fairness is what we often say. Someone who's on the outside, doesn't have skin in the game can say, well, from my experience outside, here are the things that you need to consider. So there's no magic number, you know, 50 million in revenue. It's more what you want the board to do and why you want the board to do these things.
1: So we have a couple of minutes left here. And uh, so this is a question from the audience. What are the differences between the best kinds of leaders for board owner family rooms? And might they be the same person? And is it best to have different leaders for all four rooms? Which of you would like to tackle
0: that one? In 30 seconds.
2: (laughs) 30 seconds. Yeah. So, um, I I, I think we talked a bit about yes, they are different kinds of of leaders. Um, I'm not sure there is a great answer because it depends on how many people the family has. In some cases, there aren't enough spots to go around enough people that are committed. Um, But I think more often than not, when we're talking about families that are large enough to have multiple people occupying those there is real value in sharing the burden um, and, and having people step into different roles, it increases engagement, it brings different skill sets to the table, um, it allows people to, to play different, you know, so I might be the CEO, but I'm on the board, I'm not the chair of the board, or I'm on the owner council, I'm not the chair, it gives you a different vantage point. So I, I think if you can, bringing multiple voices, perspectives, and talents into those leadership roles is going to help you know, create a little bit more resilience of the family business and the governance structure.
1: Well, I think that TV show uh, has the conqueror, right? It's the leader and the family leader of that show. So, uh, uh, Josh, and this is the last question. And I'm always fascinated by what, you know, what's the right answer here is, what's your advice on whether to gift the children, family members, stock in the company or sell it to them? Many families I work with want to hand the kids the company. What, what's your position on that?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, I'm not sure if there, there's sort of like a, a best answer here. Um, you know, I think it's oftentimes this comes down to what's most efficient from a, you know, estate planning perspective. Um, you know, there there is, you have like lifetime exemptions in the US. So, you know, with estate taxes, and so you can Gift a certain amount there's some benefits that come through sales. Um, I guess I would take a step back and say you know what kind of family business are you trying to create in the future? Do you want you know, all of the next generation to be involved and if so in what way um, do you want just one of them to actually or just those working in the business in which case a sale is going to make more sense? So you know I think those to me are more the mechanics of, of how to do it and that's always going to be influenced by the tax code and what's most efficient. Take a step back first and actually think about what are you trying to architect and design? How do you want the next generation evolved? And then you can work with your attorneys to really figure out the, the, most, the most important thing. I've seen plenty of people that have inherited a business. And treat it with a level of responsibility. Um, and I've seen plenty of people that have bought a business and feel entitled. So it's not like one is going to create a certain dynamic and the other is going to create the other. So much of it's going to be in the values that you pass down and the expectations um, that you pass down from one generation to the next, rather than in the way in which it's, it's it's passed.
1: Well, I want to tell you, you both did a great job because barely anybody left listening
2: to this <laughs> podcast.
1: So- yeah, You killed it. Thank you so much uh, for coming in. And maybe we'll have you back again as you guys maybe will come up with another book in a, a year or two uh, regarding more things that you learned, especially after what's happened with COVID and had a chance to reflect on this. Thank,
2: thank you, Mark. Great, Great discussion. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone.
1: Everybody, thanks for listening today. Have a wonderful day.